0: there's this wonderful local pizzeria and they make incredible pizza and pastas and you know amazing Italian American food especially in Northern Vermont and I offered to make them ravioli because they actually had bought me a really expensive ravioli mold just to support me and Mm -hmm. they were scared to try medicinal ravioli they were really like can it just be normal ravioli and I was like no it's got to be medicinal and you're going to love it
1: Hi I'm Dina, teacher and reluctant puppeteer turned host of La Bifana's Table, a podcast dedicated to the art of sacred hospitality, where each week listeners are invited to feast on real life stories of hope and healing, as well as soul nourishing conversations with folks from all walks of life who are utilizing their gifts in both small ways and large to make the world a more beautiful place. So pull a seat some friends, and become a part of a legendary story. Welcome to another episode of La Fana's Table. I'm your host, Dina Gregory, and in today's episode, I'm joined by Melissa Laurita Cole, an Italian-American mama, herbalist, artist, writer, homesteader, and Lucanian folk magic practitioner who has spent 24 years in deep study and relationship with plants as a gardener, permaculturist, forger, home cook, healer, and teacher. She is the author of Herbs, Pasta, and Magic, the Art of Medicinal Comfort Food. Needless to say, today's episode is sure to nourish both your body and soul. So let's jump right in.
0: So I'm originally from New York City, but I always felt differently when I would be with plants, whether it was willows in a park or you know, just staring at somebody's flower garden. And I think the way that I felt being around people and concrete versus the way I felt being around plants really inspired me to leave the city. And Mm. so eventually I made it to this very kind of strange corner of Vermont. It's pretty remote. So yes, I have been on one piece of land for about 10 years, which is the longest I've been anywhere. And this deepening into place And to myself and to my connection with animals and plants also opened me up to, I think, being able to be still enough to begin really seriously working with my ancestors and being open to kind of the mystery and magic of being alive. And so when I say Little Lucania Family Farm, the family includes my little family here. So it's my husband and my six-year-old, the animals who really feel like family to me, especially my goats and my sheep, and also my ancestors. So some of my ancestors are very active and very actively planted here, and I think engaged in being back on this land. So Lucania is the old name for Basilicata in Italy, and that's where the most active part of my Italian ancestors are from. They were also the side of my family that I primarily grew up with, and those were the Loritas. And one ancestor in particular we want to just kind of dive into the magic of ancestors. Her name is Millie. She's my great great aunt and I didn't know she existed until she kind of showed up and started showing up very strongly and then my mom knew her <laughs> from, you know, her childhood and from there kind of, you know, kind of the doors kind of opened wide but Millie is a very active part I think about I think in terms of being able to return to the land. So Mm. I'm kind of weird in my family to be out here in the middle of nowhere living like this, especially coming from the city. My family's been in New York City for, you know, about a hundred years. And it turns out that before we were in New York City, we were from Lucania, which was about the same size and population as Vermont. And Um, we were from a mountain town and I'm now in a mountainous area. And it feels a lot to me like a homecoming. I still don't have a driver's license. My husband didn't have a license. We just like biked and walked everywhere. And so I think that's part of where it feels like looking back on that. I'm like, I think the ancestors had a little bit of a, you know, role in kind of the strange odyssey. And I think that's part of why I've been able to root because it didn't feel like I had an easy out, you know, like, I was still a very much a city girl at heart when we moved out here. I found it terrifying to be out in the middle of this field. Like, you know, there's only 16 people per square mile in the town that I'm in, and I just I was convinced that there were like monsters and aliens around every corner. And then we got farm animals, and this one sheep who's no longer with us. I might start tearing up talking about him, but my sheep, Fava Bean was he was a weather and he was super super friendly and sweet and loved to be pet and so I think that my transition to rootedness and to feeling safe and comfortable in the world in a whole new way and to be able to be still was because of the sheep so in the winter I would pop out there and check on him and my alpaca and the other animals and it would be pitch black and there would just be this incredible like bull sky we're in the middle we're in the bottom of a We're not quite a valley, it's a hollow. So we're ringed by hills. We're at the bottom of this little mountain. And so you look up in the sky and it's like this giant black bowl cast with stars and pure silence, especially in the winter when everything is covered in snow and ice. There's no cars, there's nothing. And I'd be standing outside petting this sheep who just wanted me to pet him kind of all day long. And it would make me stand still and just be there in the darkness and the night. And in that process, I lost my fear of the dark, I lost my fear of nature. And I really learned how to stand still, which was not something that came easy to me. I have ADHD, you know, I grew up in New York, I'm used to that kind of frenetic energy, mm-hmm. and that busyness to really avoid yourself. Mm-hmm. And so it was really my sheep baba bean, who was my, my teacher and who trained me to just stand still still and pet a sheep and breathe in the cold air and, you know, just exist.
1: So can you take us a little bit, you know, besides sheeps helping us or anything else, (laughs) your herbs helping us. And you have now combined herbs and pasta for this medicinal magic of our lives. And I'm like, who are these people who stop and do the tangible things with their hands? I'm not one of those people. So tell me, what are we doing with making the pasta and mixing it with herbs? And how is that a path to finding magic in our lives and finding healing?
0: So it's actually interesting that you said that about yourself because I, up until about five years ago, would have called myself a nerdy herbalist. Like I'm not a maker. So there's a lot of herbalists who make lots of things and are good at making tons of products and are interested in that. And I really felt like I loved reading about them and maybe making teas or things like that. But really, it was mostly like nerding out (laughs) on everything that they can do and being really excited to share that with other people so that they could nerd out about it too. And I didn't really see myself as a maker, I was really kind of lost in my head. And I think that's part of why I find pasta making so cathartic and so grounding, because Mm. I really need that groundedness. And so the really the impetus for doing it was because again, I'm in rural Vermont, not a place where there's a lot of Southern Italians, I really have learned over time to kind of calm my Italian side down and my New Yorker side down. So I don't like scare people or offend people (laughs) by being overly boisterous or intense. And then I suddenly, you know, have this kid in the middle of nowhere. My husband looks like a Viking, but is also part Italian. And, you know, we're out here and I'm thinking about like how, when my son was a young toddler, like how do I transmit this culture because I felt really called to connect with that Italian side because it was my mother who's Italian and Sicilian. And so I suddenly I understood mothers and especially like Italian mothers in a way that I never had before. And I think that maybe at times I had like judged too harshly and like wanting to escape what can be, you know, I don't know what the right term is, patriarchal, macho, like the Italian culture is Italian American culture and the Italian culture hasn't always been kind to women. And I've had a really strong rebellion against homemaking and all of that. But I really love the idea of, of having a kid. And so here I was, I have the kid. I suddenly really resonate with being an Italian mom and being in the kitchen and how important and powerful that is. And I'm completely isolated from my culture. And I had bought my husband a few years back a pasta making machine for Christmas because he's like obsessed with eating pasta all the time, like even more than I am. And we never used it. And so I just like pulled it out. Actually, I pulled out the book that I got him um, making pasta. I think it's by Mark Betry. It's a beautiful book. And the first pasta I made was orechiette. And I made the dough specifically because I wanted to reconnect with my Italian roots. I'd never made pasta growing up. My mom had been kind of forced to make a lot of pasta, like before she'd go out on a Saturday night, she'd make, have to make like 150 ravioli or monocot shells or things like that. So she never, um, ever, ever, ever made handmade pasta growing up. And here I was, I, I made it once following the, the rules in the book. And then I took my herbal know-how and I instantly started um, making it medicinal. And it was a way to sneak medicine into an extra nutrition into my son's food. And really early on, that's the way that I was looking at it. I had studied traditional Chinese medicine and Tampo in Vermont. And as our graduation, after a year-long program, we had to make medicinal food because medicinal food is a huge part of Chinese culture and traditional Chinese medicine. And for some reason, I decided to make oatmeal but I replaced the water with a reishi decoction. And it was literally because I had to like, you know, I had to bring something in and that's just what came to mind. And the interesting thing about that is that reishi decoction, which means uh, it's reishi the mushroom, you simmer it on the stove for a long time. It tastes really bitter, like so disgustingly bitter, never in a million years would I want to drink it. And a lot of herbal medicines you drink and you have to drink like a quart a day for maybe Mm -hmm. weeks or months on end. And so that's not always easy for people. And with reishi, that was something that, like, there's no world in which I would even be taking this by the tablespoon. It was really too intense for me. But I used it. I used that decoction. So the water from that, basically, like making a reishi soup by itself, you know, with just reishi. And then I replaced the water in the oatmeal. And what I discovered was that you couldn't taste the bitterness of reishi in oatmeal because the sweetness of the grain masked mm. that bitterness. So uh, there's a lot of different ways to combine medicinal herbs with pasta. You can use powders and oils and wines and tinctures and all sorts of things. You can use the fresh plant. You can use plant juices. But my favorite way is to make a tea or a decoction or a reduction, which is where you reduce a tea or a decoction down even further. So it's really concentrated. And that liquid when it gets absorbed by flour or another grain, it's like the proteins and the starches in that are actually absorbing it. And because of that, I think it really the sweetness of the grain and the bitterness of the herb kind of cancel each other out a little bit. And so Mm -hmm. you don't notice that you're consuming something that is really hard to drink or ingest normally because of its flavor. So that was so my original impulse was to sneak Herbal medicine into food for children and other people who didn't want really bitter potions that they had to drink all day long. And it's then, the like long just yeah. a
1: spoonful of pasta helps the medicine go exactly.
0: down. The and, medicine. And, and <laughs> I Think about <laughs> that a lot. Um, and the the interesting thing is, the longer I do it, the more it starts to feel like the pasta is also a very essential part of the medicine, like making the dough is so human, you know, you think about how technological we are as a society, how we're more and more in our heads, we're more and more disconnected from our bodies, from traditions, from other people, and here you are with pasta making, you're kneading the dough, it's completely hands-on, completely creative, very human, something we've probably been doing for thousands of years in a variety of cultures, and it just feels like it's medicine for the soul, and then if you invite Mm. people over, or you do it with your kids, or you know, things like that. Like then it has this extra element of bringing people together. And that's, that's a huge part of the medicine by itself, I think.
1: And now you recently brought us some people together. You offer some retreat at times in Vermont on your property.
0: So I have offered classes on my property. My son says we have a chaos farm, (laughs) um, which is probably true. It's like two ADHD adults, one ADHD child, and like lots of animals getting to like run wild and be free. So it's not a very human-friendly place at the moment, like unless you're like a really like hippie <laughs> rustic person. So I do <laughs> offer retreats in Vermont, but it's usually at some place called Rootstock Retreat, which is also rustic, but in a in a much more luxurious way, much more people-centered way. <laughs> but they have an outdoor bathhouse and these beautiful gardens, and you're up, you know, perched on the top of a hill. And it's a really uh, magical place in and of itself. So yes, I have been I have been teaching there. And this past Saturday, we just had a four hour class that brought some you know kind of more local people together to gather around the table. And there were a few people who had been making pasta with me for over a year, and then there were a lot of people who were new. And it was maybe the highlight of my two years of teaching. I've ta- I started teaching herbal pasta before the pandemic, but then had a little bit of a break. But so I've been teaching two years. Pretty consistently over the summers. And this really felt like the culmination of what I really wanted because it felt like family. It felt mm. like we were, you know, a big, joyful Italian family. And like, just like everybody just kind of rolled into that and was really playful and excited. And I think that once you're, it brings out the little kid in all of us. Like, we all probably love to play with Play Doh. And actually, we still do if we get our hands on the dough it brings out this other, this other element. I have to say that the one thing I really do want to plug is that pasta making, as seen online, can feel really difficult. Like you have to follow these really precise rules and you have to do it just so, or it's not going to taste great and it takes forever. And why not just like get some fresh ravioli from the Italian place or, or buy some good box dried pasta, which is totally valid. If you don't want to put medicinal herbs in there. But I will say that, my, that this way of making pasta where you're focusing on flour plus tea That's really the Southern Italian way of making pasta, and that is super, super, super forgiving, super Mm -hmm. artful and creative, and much, much easier than when you're working with eggs and a different kind of flour and all that. So, for people who have tried pasta making and like this is this is not for me, I'm never going to do it. This is a very different kind of pasta making that I'm talking about. So, um, so yeah,
1: that's what would you say is your balance of like within your soul is like the preservationist, I want to preserve it as it was, and, and really stick to whatever the most original tradition is, versus like, kind of also making it your own way. Like, so, that, you know, in that balance of, of preserving the old, but, you know, embracing the new of, of your own kind of um, innovation, what would you say is your, your kind of balance and keeping it in a way that it's authentic?
0: So that's a great question. I love the idea of preserving shapes and ways of making pasta that are a little bit more obscure. And it is true that it's a little bit novel, the way that I'm trying to blend medicinal herbs with pasta making. But I will say that it's not unheard of. So there are parts of Italy that do make things like a nettles dough, kind of like a spinach dough, but you're using nettles. And Liguria has an amazing tradition of uh, incorporating a wide range of wild herbs and plants into their into the, every aspect of their culinary tradition, including pasta. And so what I'm doing is a little bit unique because I'm, you know, I'll add things like ashwagandha and, you know, turmeric and shatavari and, you know, all sorts of kind of weird things. So it's a little bit off the, the beaten track. But I have to say the longer, that, as I've recently, it suddenly occurred to me, I'm like, you know what, the history of making pasta is mostly unrecorded it's a confusing history. It's got a lot of like people who disagree about this or that, you know, it's hard to like pin down exact things for most of these shapes. But reality is this was mostly women in their homes making food for their families. And that is largely unrecorded. So I have a hard time believing that I'm the only like, I'm the first Italian who added tea to her semolina flower, like they're probably <laughs> I mean, I, I just have this fantasy that like, maybe there were Women like throughout the ages to be like, make a big batch of linden or chamomile tea, which was really common to drink, had leftover tea that didn't get that nobody drank for some reason and just like threw it in their pasta. Like I mean, it was such a culture of using what you have and Mm. being frugal and so creative. But there's a part of me that feels like there might have been other people doing this, you know, off and on throughout, throughout time. So that's one piece of it. The other piece of it is I do really think it's funny, the idea of, um, I love pasta grannies. Anybody out there who hasn't watched pasta grannies should just watch it just for soul food. It's wonderful. And they're doing a great job trying to preserve shapes and traditions. But the interesting thing is I just have this idea and this desire to eventually go to Italy and do Mm -hmm. like an herbal pasta version where I try to convince old grannies to make herbal pasta instead of their traditional way of making pasta. And I imagine, you know, I might get hit by some wooden spoons, or you might, yeah. And I (laughs) kind of think there's something fun in that. So I'm, so yeah. Well, I think that I'm probably not the first Italian, or you know, to have done this. I do, I do acknowledge that it's it's a bit of a a bit of a deviation from the norm. And some people who make, I, I actually, there's this wonderful local pizzeria. And they make incredible pizza and pastas and, you know, amazing Italian American food, especially in Northern Vermont. And I offered to make them ravioli because they actually had bought me a really expensive ravioli mold just to support me. And Mm -hmm. they were scared to try medicinal ravioli. They were really like, can it just be normal ravioli? And I was like, no, it's got to be medicinal and you're going to love it. And sure enough, they did. So I think for people who are used to making good Italian food grew up with it it's kind of a bigger leap to start adding medicinal herbs than it is for somebody maybe who didn't grow up in that tradition
1: for a non-herb person who's like let me experiment I mean I'm like that's the way I'm gonna get my herbs I'm like trick me please Please put the medicine inside this thing that I want to eat all the time (laughs) exactly exactly you had mentioned this, just a little comment of like about, you know, the frugalness and the creativity. How has that like kind of impacted like your own journey? Or have you kind of seen like those as challenges trying to be frugal? Or is that ethos like in your way of creating? So I
0: would say yes and no. Again, I think that I think when you have ADHD and a young child and things like that, Frugalness, if it's not something learned, like in terms of how to, to make do with what you have, can be a little bit more of a challenge. And also, I find that, you know, I'm the primary farmer in my family. My husband, my he is a super nerd. He's a computer nerd. He's been a vegan for over 30 years. He's not a farm animal guy. So he'll help at times. But really, I'm like the farmer. And farmers usually had wives to help preserve the harvest. So I feel like I really have a deficit in in that, like I'm missing an important part of the equation, because I'm not always able to fully take advantage of the abundance of what I have here. That Mm. said, once I started really cooking a lot of medicinal pasta, and kind of tuning into my ancestors, I started to shift the way that I really made it. So early on, I was buying like You know, lots of different medicinal powders and other kinds of things that I could throw into my pasta. And now I'm really using what I have, you know, like what's growing. If there's a ton of lambs quarters in my like half abandoned garden, then that's what's going in the pasta today. And once I make the pasta, I'm gonna have this salty, starchy pasta water. And then I'm gonna take that and I'm gonna turn it into a soup. And what's gonna go in the soup? Well, whatever random things might go bad in the fridge or you know, whatever I should be digging up out of the ground. So I think this this way of being frugal and using what you have, it is completely transferable to urban environments and town environments, because it's not wasting. So the pasta right. water is not something you chuck down the drain, it's something that you use in these different ways. And it's actually it's interesting, because for me, it's very hard to, to write my recipes down for soups and for sauces, because those especially are where I feel like that tradition of using whatever you have to creatively combine it to make it tasty is, is really what feels very true to me. And it's hard for me to, you know, I'm, I am a real Italian American. So it's hard for me to follow real recipes, (laughs) write real recipes down. But especially when I'm just
1: putting as much salt in until my ancestor whispers,
0: stop. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I think I'm actually grateful for that, because I lost my sense of taste for six months straight still goes in and out so the you fact that I yeah with COVID and the fact that I cook by feel like a lot of times I'm cooking because I just like it just feels like that's the those are the kind of vegetables that you go there or those are the kinds of herbs and a lot of times I won't taste my food before I like put it down in front of someone because I burnt my tongue so often at home I used to be the <laughs> taste tester as a kid and my mom's food, my mom is the best cook in the entire world as far as I'm concerned. Her food blows my food away. And so you'd smell this, these incredible mouth-watering aromas of tomato and garlic and Italian seasonings and just really like flavor and, and aromatics to the max. And you knew exactly how good it was going to taste. And then you had to be the one to taste the spaghetti and you burn your tongue and like that's it. So I, I <laughs> cook by feel, I really do. It's kind of like like a more like painting or... <laughs> kind of Mm. visually artistic and just kind of by intuitive feel. And then also a little bit of that frugality thrown in. And so that has served me well when my sense of taste and sense of smell starts to kind of like deviate again and I can't rely on it. Well, I never really, I always kind of, you know, listen to something else or someone else. I think the ancestors love it when we cook and especially when we make pasta. That's actually what opened me up to working with them is when I started to make pasta, I could just feel them get really close.
1: Can you tell me what that looks like for you? Because I have, you know, there's a mix of people who listen to Love of Funness Table that are, you know, a lot have ancestral practices. Some are like, what are y'all talking about? You know, and I feel like it is very different and unique and personal. So can you tell me, like, what is that resonance for you of like, how does cooking for you kind of close the gap or thin the veil between them <laughs> and you?
0: So um, I have a really weird ancestral story that happened to me when I was 19 that I'll share. But, but I, I want to answer your question first about this idea of like, how do you experience them for the most part? Or how do you know they're there? Or what's that connection? And I think there's a lot of different levels. I think there's just that level within ourselves when we start to feel really open and connected to tradition or connected to our loved ones or remembering of our family. It gives us a sense of rootedness that we mm-hmm. really need. Forgetting her name, oh, I, I think it's Maya Tawari. but she's uh, an Ayurvedic practitioner and healer, and she has this beautiful story where she survived terminal cancer, and she did so because she reconnected with her roots, which in her case were Ayurvedic and Hindu, and and that. She really felt like that is what cured her, that you can't, Mm. she had run away from home actually to New York city and was very successful. And at a young age was like struck down by cancer and medicine did what they could and it wasn't enough. And then she actually went to Vermont and hung out in this little cabin for the winter and confronted herself and face all of her trauma and her feelings about her family and, and everything. And then really picked back up that thread of connectedness between her and her father and her family. And I thought about that a lot as I kind of ran away from New York city and like, you know, got as far away from that lifestyle as I could. And then I'm like, what missing that sense of rootedness. So I feel like just in psychologically, spiritually, whatever it is, just reconnecting with our roots is that one level. The Mm -hmm. other level is that ancestors tend to come in behind us for whatever reason, there's a strange directionality. So if you have this like sense of presence or, Familiarity or anything kind of like this little bit of a pressure behind you. That's kind of what I mean when I say coming in around you. When I would make pasta, I could feel, I felt connected myself, you know, psychologically. And then I could feel this like presence with me. And it opened me up to working with ancestors who had tried to get my attention for 18 or 19 years. And I was like, nope, too crazy, too weird. Like, I'm not going to do that. And through making pasta, it was like this shared experience with them, where it suddenly felt safe. And I felt mm-hmm. really connected to them in a tangible way. Like it was really a safe way to engage with them. And then it opened my mind to really begin speaking and working with them. And finally, to not be afraid of that part of me, and mm-hmm. to accept it. And, and the truth is, it's not crazy by Italian standards. The dead are a very prominent part of Southern Italy, sure. yeah. um, you know, but by American standards, because you know, we're even this many generations removed from Italy, you know, I felt I felt like I still had the heart and soul of an Italian, but I had like the mind of an American. And mm-hmm. now that I'm Very older, I yeah, I feel like I can fully start to begin to integrate those. Yeah, <laughs>
1: and I love how you said that, and that the the kind of the integration of those two, and the way that you can you can share your real gifts and medicine in this world that is so kind of desperately needing, <laughs> you know, needing it, you know, from that point of view of where you said like the making, you know what I mean? Like hands guys, let's get back and be tactile. Let's touch stuff. Let's, yes, exactly. let's do that. and let's get the, you know, bring these plant herbal allies with us. And that brings me to my next question. Now, part of your work, you said you do a lot of like, you do like herbal consults and figuring out who your plant allies are. And I love how you said, let's see, doom to the doom. That red thread of connection. So, I would love, you know, what this line of work and, and who have you come in contact with and, and how has it aided them on their journeys?
0: I guess the first thing I have to say when it, when it comes to herbalism or weaving plants back into our diet is that as human animals, we were meant to eat a wide variety of wild foods and a wide variety of plant foods, and our bodies don't fully function without those chemical inputs from the plants. So for example, our livers, when they study liver cells outside of the body, they don't really do anything until you bring some bitter compounds into their their little Petri dish. And then suddenly they kind of wake up and they start functioning. And so something like coffee, right? Coffee is an herbal medicine that most people are addicted to, or at least a lot of people are addicted to, And it is really this profound plant medicine. It can be problematic for in some ways because it's so potent, but at least it is this bitter, wild medicine and brew that's coming into otherwise a very tamed and civilized diet. And our tamed and civilized vegetables have lost a lot of that potency because, you know, we want them to taste better or we want them to ship better or any of these other things. So on one level, this work with herbal pasta is really just to integrate wild foods back into people's diets. And it doesn't have to be very clinical or very specific, but there's a wide range of medicinal herbs that are appropriate for people to be using regularly. And almost anyone with any constitution, any health picture can use a lot of these different kinds of herbs. On the flip side, when we're struggling with very specific things, there can be herbal allies who work really well with certain conditions or certain people. And I think that herbs really shine when it comes to mental health, when it comes to your nervous system, they do really well when it comes to your digestive system, they can be really supportive and kind of normalizing to your endocrine system and your immune system. So there are all all these ways that herbs can really be used very specifically as medicine. So when I work with people, you know, I work with them to develop an herbal pasta practice, if that's what they want, you can certainly put some really good, you know, dosage of medicine in pasta, and work with it in that way, but also as teas or, or other kinds of things. And usually it's finding, you know, kind of you start where you are. And it's usually, usually there's a an herb for the nervous system or an herb that helps you to reduce stress or hold grief or get comfortable in your body, these kinds of things where you start taking one plant, and you feel much better. And then it opens the door to be able to make other kinds of dietary or lifestyle changes. So, I do do herbal consults, but my passion is really teaching people how to use the herbs for themselves. And so, even in my consults, it's more like one on one kind of tutoring or way of working with plants. There are a lot of really good clinical herbalists. You just focus on the using herbs in this more medical framework. And I think there's a time and place for that. And like, you can do some pretty incredible things with herbs. But my passion is really for getting them back onto everybody's plate, whether you think that you're some people are like, Oh, I don't use herbs, because I'm healthy, or they they view them as pharmaceuticals, like, Oh, I don't take par- I don't take medicines, and I don't take herbs. But it's different, because herbs are more like just a natural part of our diet, that our body really, really needs to thrive, especially in, you know, kind of more modern, world where we have bigger or different health burdens than people used to.
1: And so I'm curious in terms of I mean so much of you coming to this you said was like you having a son and you kind of figuring having rebelled against the homemaking yeah. <laughs> traditions yeah. to like passionately embracing them what is your hope that you're you're bringing to the next generation like how is your son engaging with the work that you're doing? So my hope is that this becomes normal, you
0: know? Right now it's very obscure. (laughs) There are very few people who have heard of it, and you know, at least probably half to three quarters of those think it's really like weird or disgusting. So I really want it to become normal because I think that I just want to normalize eating and using herbs all the time. And I also like the idea of being able to keep, to hold on to that tradition of making pasta by hand. Um, Because like I said, apparently it's even fading in Italy, you know, because as we become more, you know, industrialized and you know all of that, so that's on the one, the one level. And my son, who's six now, he started making herbal pasta when he was two, and he really is this little wild man, you know, who can identify a wide range of plants and all sorts of stages outside, but also never likes to like sit still or focus on anything until you bring him into the kitchen. And when he starts to make pasta and work that dough, it's a complete change for him. He's very uh, peaceful and focused and passionate about it. And he loves picking out the herbs to put into into the pasta. And he loves tasting the sauce and deciding whether or not we need to like add more seasonings or whatever it is. And for him and for other kids, I would love that sense of them coming back home to the plants and also to the kitchen, because even just cooking at home is becoming such a rare, rare thing yeah, I guess that's my, that's my hope.
1: That's amazing to hear. Now, have you been able to yet in your, I mean, you're, you're sharing your work, you're putting it out there. Have you been able besides your son to work with other kids? I know you're bringing this work to adults, but I am curious, how do you work with this with the family? You know, I'm just thinking about it now, as you're saying that, like, how many other kids could find, like, find that real tangible connection and really benefit from it?
0: Yeah, I think that is a huge plus. And I've worked with a few other families. I've worked with one family where the kids are more neurotypical. So they're kind of common focused no matter what they're doing compared to my son. But I also taught a class here on my farm, the one herbal pasta class I did teach here, I made family friendly. And I had um, three other boys attend, actually two, two other boys, because the the youngest stayed home that day. But it was a, a four year old and an eight-year-old, probably also likely, you know, hyperactive like my son. And there was a lot of chaos and freneticism as we we're like running about the farm and looking at plants and things like that. And we go into my little tiny house, which is an 11 by 11 room. And there's like, I don't know, five or six adults and three kids. And there's a, a the dad who's like six, four. And we're in this tiny little room making pasta. And the boys were, you know, kind of like a little, little wild. And then as soon as we brought out the flower, and we brought out the tea, they all calmed down, and they all focused and everything Mm. just shifted in the room. And I think that combination of that tactile, you know, experience, so it's like the sensory delight, and then it's also creative. And then when you can eat it, suddenly it becomes empowering as well. You know, it's one thing to be able to make art and then like look at it and have people admire it, but Mm -hmm. to have people eat it and say yum, like to feed yourself, it just touches on this other kind of nerve. So I think that, yeah, that might be, that is another place to, to explore that, I think it would be great in classrooms. I'm actually, I'm teaching, I'll be teaching a large group of kids how to make herbal pasta soon, actually at a, at an outdoor family event. So it'll be outdoor pasta making with lots of families. So we'll see how that goes. But I think it's, if you have kids or you work with kids, I think it's a great thing to to try out with them for sure. Really amazing.
1: <laughs> but thank you so much for bringing this work together and in a way I don't know. Giving so many people who wouldn't have that, like a real touch point, a real access point to combine that. I mean, it's you definitely found something magical. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Yeah, I think again, I think the ancestors had a little. <laughs> you know, I just feel like like they they had a hand in it um, ha- for sure. <laughs> right. It's a
1: it's a co creative yes <laughs> co creative process. Anything else coming up? How do people contact you? how do they get in touch with you how do they make the pasta what where do they go from here
0: so herbspasta i am pre-selling my book because i'm self-publishing so i have to sell a certain number of books to be able to publish and hopefully it'll be out late fall so if you're excited about this work and want to support it and want to have a, a wonderful medicinal pasta surprise it, you know arrive to your door one day that's <laughs> a great place to start i also do have an, uh, one online Pasta class that's just kind of open and available. But if you go to my website, you can also sign up for my newsletter. So it is a good way to stay in touch with me and what I'm up to, along with, you know, Instagram or Facebook.
1: Oh my God. It's herbs, homesteading, healing, and
0: (laughs) yeah, everything I love kind of like weave together into, you know, one thing. (laughs)
1: That is kind of the beautiful thing about, you know, one never knows. Like, it makes sense going back. i I think especially for some of us on the more artistic, you know, all over, why are my interests so varied? And then you go, yeah. oh my God. Under this, there's, there's a genius that knows how to, a collective genius, an ancestral genius, your own gifts that can bring all of those things together into, you know, one's life's work. One's real and true. I would say like, you can have a million offerings, right? You can, you know, but I'm talking about you clearly have a gift and an offering that is of your soul.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And one thing I wanted to say, actually, maybe a last thing about that is that in order to get to this place, I had to fail a lot, you know, I think because you're not, you know, herbalism was one part of the picture and organic farming was one part of the picture. And there, you know, there were all these, these different pieces, but I, I kind of, you know, I had an apothecary and then through random circumstances, the building sold and, my life imploded in that fell away. And then I had an herb school and then through more weird circumstances, I lost that. And, you know, then I got long COVID. And like all this stuff kind of just kept like derailing me. And it'd be easy to paint a story where, you know, I'm a failure, right? I failed Mm -hmm. at all these things and I'm really good at doing it. And yet I cannot find a way to be successful at doing it. So what does that mean? What is the story about? But really, everything was kind of like shifting me, you know, or had lessons to to really deepen my relationship to myself and to my work. And suddenly, yeah, I arrived at something that really is feels like this is my soul, like this is the deepest part of me, this is the most integrative thing and authentic thing I could possibly offer the world. And I never would have arrived here had my life been easy or had things worked out. So I'm, you know, 41 and feel like I'm just starting to like really hit my stride with something that I'm deeply like passionate about and also kind of uniquely positioned to offer to the world.
1: Right. And that it takes, you know, if you're on that path of like real soul offering versus, you know, we're here to make money and da-da-da-da-da, and, you know, th- that way, the American, the typical American <laughs> mind, you know, that's not something that people talk about, like, boom, and then I did this and then I failed and I did that and I failed and I did this, but then kind of with each of those things, bringing the the essence, that thread, right? Like maybe it all falls away and all, except for like the thread that's supposed to really be there, you know? so Exactly. It's, I, I'm seeing you like uh, the image that I'm I'm getting is like braiding. You know what I mean? Like ah, I'm now braiding these things into this one. Yes.
0: Yeah. That's the that's the process, and just kind of rolling with it and letting yourself kind of fall apart and be in it. Mm. is a really, it's hard for us to do. Like you said, we'll, we'll avoid the hard parts of feeling, you know, like crazy, which actually is the other reason why I really love medicinal comfort food, because I don't think there's any shame in that, you know, when, when life is profoundly bitter or challenging or hard and you crave comfort food and you crave sweets and you crave pasta there is a body and soul wisdom in there saying that I need the counterpoint to this bitterness, I need some sweetness in my life, it is too much for me. And so to create to have comfort food, that's also sneaking in medicine, that's truly deeply supportive of, your, of the body and the mind. And mm. then you have that kind of like, that deep, deep comfort from food, from really good, like fam- familiar food, I think is, you know, is again, is another kind of layer of why I'm so I passionate mean, about this.
1: I feel like I'm eating as if am I, and I make this with you, I'm, it's like eating a philosophy and that there, there is comfort, but like you have pulled this comfort from like the innermost part of you.
0: Yeah. And all the parts of me, you know, kind yeah. of, the part of me that, you know, I actually I discovered once I left my my Italian home that I don't experience hunger unless I smell tomato sauce and garlic cooking on the stove. You know, so like that little that little child self that like needs those aromas and, you know, the baby me who lived on chamomile tea because I was so colicky and so like developed this deep love of plants and. You know all these different pieces of ourselves um You're bringing
1: them all along
0: exactly everybody gets to be part of this party and the part of me that was like a fat kid and highly traumatized and mm. you know, or the pat- part of me that was like a chronically ill adult you know with long covid and like isolated like all of these parts of me get to be at this table with me mm. because they all have profound medicine The worst habits we have, there's some kind of wisdom buried in there. So I think the best thing that we can do is to not to unbury things that we feel ashamed of or to realize that there is no there really is no shame. There's a there's a part of you that's struggling when you have no tools. Right. You know, so we know Mm -hmm. that we feel better, you know, emotionally we feel better if we eat. You know, a pound of pasta or or a bucket of ice cream when somebody breaks up with us, but there's that it's because we don't have the other tools for how we can engage sweetness in those moments,
1: and mm. so i really um,
0: I really look at it that way like every every misguided habit we have or everything we say we want to eliminate come, you know, New Year's Eve, or whatever. it is. (laughs) You know, these things are all wisdom. It's just we don't you we grew up in a society that wasn't really keen on wisdom, it wasn't keen on tradition, and really, you know, didn't, didn't have a lot of we didn't grow up with a lot of tricks in our bag. And so it's just kind of expanding on that, you know, like the part of me that wants to eat when I'm like, really grieving or sad or scared, like that part of me, I love her. You know, mm. I love her, and I love that she found a way to comfort herself in like the deepest of like traumas and terrors, like as a child, and she gets to have a big fucking bowl of pasta, and yes. when she eats it now, it's gonna make her feel really good because there's all these herbs in there, so suddenly I'll breathe more deeply or be less stressed, or I won't mm. feel bad, my body won't feel bad from indulging that part of me that needs that deep, sweet comfort and nourishment, mm. you know, and so um. Yeah, that's, I could, I could just keep talking about all these things. (laughs) But that is,
1: that's the medicine, you know what I mean? Like, you know, as I have these conversations and, you know, I'm, we're, we're growing this table. This is a co-creative collective little effort over here. Maybe a couple thousand people listen to it. Maybe, you know, maybe so many, but I, I do feel like in these conversations, we're leaving these, like I had told in a conversation with Jen Campus, uh, they were leaving these like little breadcrumbs, you know, like, okay guys, <laughs> here next generation, take these little bits, <laughs> <Yes>. keep going <laughs> I love that i really i I really love that, and I hope people who are listening today can can see that and like bring that forward, right that whatever that thing that's like living in shame, like that's probably one of your deepest gifts is hiding under there, like so exactly
0: i couldn't. I couldn't be here or doing what I'm doing without like, without hardship and confronting myself being part of the part of the picture, you know, whether I what I always identified those pieces of me that I was abandoning, or Mm. just like kind of sitting in what was really hard, and what was really painful and being really, really, really profoundly stuck. And then just letting myself be whoever I was in that moment, you know, not not forcing myself to be nice or be positive or be anything that I was. And for me actually, so I, I'm in the middle of nowhere, but I happened to get COVID right before the pandemic actually started, you know, from a friend who caught sick from someone who just came back from Wuhan. So like very random like this feels like, Oh yes, that was probably meant to be. And I developed long COVID before anyone knew that was a thing. And I could feel it in my body. I was like, Oh, I am not kicking this. And there's something about being profoundly ill in a way where you lose your body and you lose your mind at the same Mm. time, because it attacks the brain so thoroughly. So you're, you know, weaker and more debilitated than you could ever imagine being. And then your mind isn't with you either. So it's not like, oh, I can't stand up, I can't move, I can't walk, but at least I can think or I can be kind or I can, you know, I really kind of lost it all. Um, Mm. in the worst of it. And, and I was profoundly isolated and at home with a three year old and a sick husband, and, you know, farm animals and just kind of being in that Mm. deep, humbling suffering, where I got to, you know, it was, it was exactly what I needed, I think, in order to have the next 40 years of my life be, be different, you know, to drop the martyr, to drop the always nice, always serving other people, always sacrificing, and to really be, let myself be selfish, which I thought was like a cardinal sin sin. growing up, you know, like Italian Catholic girl, like, oh my God, to be selfish was like the worst thing anybody could be. And I am selfish now. And if I'm tired, I take care of myself. And I, you know, I just, it's just fundamentally changed me. And I had to, I had, I think that being that sick and that isolated was such bitter medicine. It was so Mm. bitter. I was so bitter. (laughs) And, Mm. and, and, you know, being on the other side of it, I'm so grateful for what being forced to just like, stay there, you know, and to and to be there and to be humbled by it. I think if we can let ourselves be humbled by those moments when we fall, then when we, you know, when we make it through to the other side, there's, such a different way of orienting to the world and to ourselves. And that's, I'm grateful that my life fell apart a few different times before I, Mm. before I really like reached this moment, because um, every time it reoriented me and helped me be who I more deeply am.
1: Oh my God. It is such a pleasure. I can't wait to have you back and to see what kind of collaborative, fun things that we all do to like, you know, the beauty of Zoom, the beauty of when we kind of embrace, like, I found you on Instagram on this, you know, thing that I don't want to be a part of. And yet it's still bringing me into a tactile world, you know? Exactly. So yeah. it's like, how do we use technology to bring us back into a, a high touch world? Yes,
0: completely. You know? I mean, that's how I'm learning how to make pasta. You know, it's yeah. it's online. It's from books. It's you know, I don't, women in my family who could have taught me aren't here anymore. So if not for YouTube (laughs) and things like this, I would have a hard time reskilling when it comes to these things. So yeah, use it, use it as a tool and then kind of run away from it and go be in the physical world. All right,
1: take care. Thanks so much for pulling up a seat to La Bufana's table. To get episodes sent direct to your inbox, as well as other perks such as access to our monthly community and connection hours, be sure to subscribe to my Substack, .substack dinagregory.substack.com. Ciao!